Attention passengers, we are now entering Port-au-Prince Bay. Guys, get up here. The view is amazing. Wow, Dad. Get some pictures. Oh, I am. I've never seen a view like that before. Too bad we aren't docking here. I know. I wonder what Haiti is like. What a trip that would be, huh, hon? Peterson Family Vacation to Haiti, 1978. Well, maybe next year. Yeah, Dad. Our 1979 family trip. Look at that. Whoa, Hank, don't lean on the railing like that. What's going on, honey? There are people in the water. It looks like they're trying to swim to us. Please do not toss personal items off the starboard or port side of the ship. Dad, why are people throwing change? I have no idea, son. Waste of money if you ask me. Holy hell! Chels, take Hank and go back to the room. They're shooting the people in the water! Content warnings have never really been my thing because I think the title of this show speaks for itself, but this episode will be an exception. This episode may be upsetting to some of you who can't stomach much violence. Now, for those of you who haven't tuned out, this episode is unique in a few ways. It's the first full-length standalone episode that isn't a bonus episode or an interview. It also is dropping at a time when, as I understand it, the country of Haiti is dealing with some significant gang violence. I'll be honest, these intros I write last as sort of a commentary of my experience in researching and writing on the topic at hand, but I find myself unable to really articulate much of anything because the actions of the Tonton Makut and their connections to business interests and the U.S. government is such a deep rabbit hole that it would be better to just jump right in. But here are some basics. The Tonton Makut were a secret police force established by Haitian physician and dictator Francois Duvalier, better known as Papa Doc. The Makut brutalized the Haitian people and utilized the country's voodoo traditions to invoke fear of a mythical boogeyman. We're going to go through the history of Haiti, how it was found by Europeans, the slave trade, the types of crops cultivated in Haiti, the slave rebellion, and of course, the secret police. We're going to find out how Papa Doc got into power. Who led the Tantamakut through its years in activity? Why did Papadoc find it necessary to establish such a brutal institution? And how close was this regime to the U.S. government? I've seen a bunch of new listeners, so if you are new here, welcome. And please feel free to check out the back catalog of content. Just a few housekeeping bits before we take off. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of Google, nor do they sponsor me. And it appears Google Podcasts is shutting down sometime in 2024. If you were not already aware of this, I would do your own research to confirm. I know I have a decent number of you who listen to Secret Police on Google Podcasts, so you can find Secret Police episodes and more on the YouTube channel or subscribe to Secret Police on another podcast platform. There will be a mid-show break, not for any ads, but for a promo of a fellow history podcaster. So uh, stick around for that. You are listening to The Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. My name is Jack, and I'm on a mission to build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. I spend hours engaging with my morbid fascination with dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We start our journey, interestingly enough, with Christopher Columbus. 
Born somewhere between 1436 and 1455 in Genoa, Italy, Columbus gained seafaring experience on several different voyages in the Aegean Sea and the Atlantic. Chris studied astrological navigation, geography, and applied mathematics. He made several theories based on his study of maps and other related sources and hypothesized that if he were to continue west beyond Iceland that he would eventually reach the continent of Asia. Columbus assumed that the Atlantic was the only ocean and that the world was small, therefore the Atlantic was narrow, or at least narrow enough to sail from Europe to Asia. He also assumed that there was no large landmass between Europe and Asia. Columbus appealed to the Spanish crown, specifically King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, to try and gain support for a westerly exploration of the Atlantic. With the king and queen's blessing, Columbus had just 10 weeks to pull together a crew, ships, and the necessary resources for the long journey across the Atlantic. He assembled 90 crew members to be divided amongst three ships called the Niña, Pinta, and Santa Maria. According to some sources, Columbus's first one-way trip across the Atlantic took 61 days. I do not like the ocean that much. Imagine being on a small ship, feeling the unsteady ocean beneath you all the time for two months straight. A hard pass for me. No thanks. Bye. In fact, at one point, this gaggle of glorified rowboats thought they'd never encounter land after more than three weeks in an area of the ocean with little wind. Columbus promised to the first man to spot land that he would receive 1,000 gold pieces or maravidas per year for the rest of his life. National Geographic says that Columbus first landed at the Bahamas, but he eventually discovered, or at least was the first to set his European eyes on the island of Hispaniola. The first man to spot land was a guy named Rodrigo, and he never received those thousand gold pieces. Columbus instead made up some BS about seeing land first and took the reward for himself. Um, Mr. Columbus, it's Rodrigo. I just wanted to talk to you about the reward. What reward? The reward for the land, seeing the land, I see it first. So? You said 1,000 maravidas if we see land first and I see it first. No, you didn't, Roddy. I saw land first at dawn on the horizon. Sir, I was on watch. You were napping. Roddy, I'll put you in a permanent nap if you keep arguing. What a cheap bastard Columbus was. Anyway, Hispaniola is a Caribbean island between Puerto Rico to the east and Cuba and Jamaica to the west. This collective island region in the Caribbean is called the Greater Antilles. Hispaniola is roughly the size of West Virginia or South Carolina, and the island is a little over 700 miles from Miami. Hispaniola has a tropical climate where the humidity is like swimming in air, but Hispaniola has quite a diverse landscape including five major mountain ranges that affect regional climate due to the rain shadow effect, where basically a mountain range blocks or stops clouds carrying moisture and it rains on one side of the mountain range, but not so much on the other side, leaving it arid and desert-like. The island has areas with desert dunes and pine forests, and, of course, beautiful beaches. As a bonus, or perhaps a curse, the island is great for agriculture. The native islanders grew a number of crops such as cassava, peppers, squash, and beans, to name a few. When Columbus landed on the island, it was called La Española, roughly translating to the Spanish island. To be clear, Columbus claimed the island for Spain because he was conducting the expedition on behalf of the Spanish crown, not for his home country of Italy. His expedition landed on the northern coast of modern-day Haiti. 
They were greeted by the indigenous Taino and Arawak peoples who inhabited Caribbean islands for several thousand years prior to encountering Europeans. The Taino specifically welcomed Columbus and his crew, and these two groups were able to engage in trade. But think about how mind-blowing it would be to encounter a whole-ass group of human beings on an island who have no prior experience with or concept of an outside world. In trading with the natives, Columbus noticed that while the natives didn't possess metal weapons, they did wear pieces of gold for jewelry. A chief even presented Columbus with a solid gold mask. This made Columbus rock hard. God, girth, and gold was his motto. Well, maybe it wasn't, but it is now. He needed to find out where all this gold was hiding. But first, he needed to return to Spain to report his success to the king and queen, and then return to the Caribbean with more men. So Columbus and his men established a coastal outpost called La Navidad. It was a fortified settlement, you know, as much as one could fortify a settlement in the 1400s on a foreign island. Before Columbus set sail for Spain, however, two natives were killed for refusing a trade. Columbus decided to take some natives captive for his return journey. He ordered about 40 men to remain on Hispaniola for an entire year to live at La Navidad. This will go about as well as you probably guessed. Roddy, my boy, come here. Yes, Mr. Columbus. As you know, we are leaving in a few days' time for España. I handpicked 20 of our strongest men to stay here and maintain relations with the natives. I mean, it doesn't help the Santa Maria sank, but that doesn't mean the rest of us have to stay. But thank God, sir. I, I miss my wife and kids. Well, that's just it, Roddy. You know how you first spotted land? Sir, you said I didn't spot land first. You said I didn't say that you hadn't tried, Roddy. And for your bravery at sea, you are staying here. Sir, I... Now, now, just build yourself a watchtower or something. I'm sure you'll be the first to spot hostile natives. It was also around this time that, at least from Columbus's European perspective, Hispaniola was divided into five distinct chiefdoms, each ruled by a prominent native chief. So Columbus took his men and his captives and raged back to Spain around December of 1492. He convinced the king and queen to provide additional money and resources for a second expedition, and that there was an abundance of resources including gold and human beings. Columbus returned to La Navidad the following November 1493, and found it to be a thriving metropolis with functioning public highways, toll roads, competent public transport, free Wi-Fi, and a functioning municipal government where the annual income per capita exceeded 100 grand. No, of course that's not what happened. La Navidad was destroyed and all 40 guys left behind were slaughtered by the natives. Poor Rodrigo. I don't actually know if the real Rodrigo from the first voyage was condemned to the island or not. In 1496, the town of San Domingo was established on Hispaniola's southeastern coast, which served as the primary hub for importing soldiers, colonists, slaves, and material resources. Soldiers were needed to ensure slave laborers didn't revolt, and the crown thought it wise to colonize these quote-unquote unclaimed territories, hence transporting colonists. Columbus focused on finding more gold. He and his men crisscrossed the Caribbean islands, confronting the natives and demanding access to gold. Word spread throughout the indigenous communities, who fled certain areas to avoid danger. Columbus grew frustrated in their lack of progress in finding gold, so he turned to the second reason for his return, slaves. The seafarers captured Taino and other Arawak peoples, mostly men, some children keeping them in human pens or enclosures. The strongest, most able-bodied were shipped to Spain. About 40% of those people died at sea. The survivors were auctioned off in Europe. 
Columbus's throbbing gold boner wouldn't be satisfied without some of the precious metal. He appointed himself governor of Hispaniola and ordered the natives at least 14 years old of age to obtain a certain quota of gold per week. Those who were successful were awarded with a copper necklace. Those without a necklace had their hands chopped off. Much of Columbus's crew on the second journey were made up of ex-convicts. They suffered from tropical diseases, boredom, and were thousands of miles away from home and consequences. Crew members terrorized the natives and raped the women. In a brutal two-year search for gold, the natives experienced marked depopulation. It's impossible to estimate with certainty the population of the Arawak and Taino peoples on Hispaniola at the time. Some estimates suggest there could have been as many as 250,000 to a million people on Hispaniola. More recent estimates put the populations of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico combined at 10 to 50,000. Approximately one-third or more of Hispaniola's native population were wiped out likely due to European diseases, conflicts with the explorers, as well as Columbus's methods to obtain gold. I think this is partly why, in the past decade, there has been a big move to de-emphasize Columbus the man, or rename Columbus Day here in the U.S. at least. Columbus received substantial support from the Spanish crown for additional expeditions to find another continent. He died in 1506, but the damage was done. Hispaniola continued existing under the yoke of Spanish colonialism, and going into the 16th century, the situation for the natives didn't improve. Sources indicate an estimated 95% of the Taino people were wiped out by 1519 due to years of exposure to foreign pathogens like smallpox. Some called the Spanish Empire's treatment of Hispaniola a genocide. The natives were still forced to search for and then mine gold as different deposits were discovered. But the game changed when settlers from the Canary Islands brought sugarcane. Oh boy, did I ever go down a rabbit hole about sugar. Let's explore this a little because sugar has been and is important in understanding Haitian history. Sugar, or saccharum in Latin, is considered a perennial grass. There are many different varieties such as saccharum robustus, for example. I couldn't find which type is most common for crops, but from what I can tell, cane farmers use the type best suited for the specific region and climate. Sugarcane grows somewhere between 6 to 20 feet tall. It has shoots that look like bamboo. Atop the shoots are sprawling, lush offshoots of grass leaves. This stuff is pretty robust. I watched some YouTube videos of grown men who couldn't even wrap their hands around the shoots. It's not easy to pull the shoots from the ground, but a machete does the trick. Given these characteristics, you might be thinking that it would suck to be enslaved and forced to harvest cane in the heat and humidity, and you would be correct in thinking that. These days, harvesting sugarcane is done by heavy machines, but pre-industrial farming relied on free labor. The first sugar mill on Hispaniola was built in 1516. Now that white stuff that you put in your coffee, sugar, not cocaine, come on guys, is the end product of a whole lot of processing. Honestly, more processing than I wanted to know. I posted links in the episode notes if you want to find out the chemistry details, but we'll keep this to a general overview. Once the cane is harvested, the first step is to extract the juice. This is done by some sort of pulverizer and blade system. The pulp is then separated, which can be used for a variety of its own purposes. The juice then needs to be boiled. And by the way, sugarcane juice is actually green due to chemicals present in the solution, such as carotenoids. You can drink the juice on its own. It shouldn't harm you, but it is surprisingly acidic. Boiling the cane juice removes impurities and creates a sort of syrup. 
It's like boiling water with a high concentration of dissolved sugar. The syrup is a sludge-like substance. If I'm not mistaken, that substance is partly molasses. There are a couple other processes, and again, I encourage you to check out the links, but eventually the sugar crystals are removed by centrifuging the pure liquid containing a high concentration of sugar. The crystals are then collected, washed, dried, put in bags, and sent to the grocery store. From tall sugar crane to food grade sugar on your kitchen counter. The stats vary, but something like 50 to 70% of all household sugar actually derives from sugar beets rather than sugar cane. And the extraction and refinement process is about the same with beets. In the sugar industry, the extraction of sugar from beets is actually called beating off. When you put a spoonful or two of sugar in your coffee, you are likely mixing the result of beating off in your drink. Look, I'm just the messenger, I don't make the rules. Again, without the benefit of industrial scale vats, giant crushers, and modern chemistry, extracting sugar in a 16th century mill looked quite different. I couldn't find the exact process followed, but the chemistry doesn't change. There needs to be separation of the juice, boiling, then extracting sugar crystals. How many of you were convinced that getting sugar from beets is called beating off? <laughs> That's not true. That was just my insane nonsense. What is interesting is that sometimes sugarcane farmers burn part of the crops before harvest. The fire burns off the leaves, leaving the stalks containing the sugarcane juice alone. It's much easier and more cost-effective to burn off those top leaves so they don't get into the machines and mix with the prized shoots. So why was sugar so valuable? Today it seems like sugar is in everything from desserts like baked goods, ice cream, added sugars and juice, soda, pasta sauce, salad dressing. It's a long list. There is huge demand for sugar. But back when Hispaniola was being colonized, sugar was a commodity in demand amongst the upper classes who could afford it. And you also couldn't have Jack Sparrow's favorite drink without sugar. Rum is a spirit made from the molasses, a byproduct of the sugar processing. And why is this important? Why does a sweet food item that gives us a little burst of endorphins have anything to do with Haiti or colonialism? The answer is money. Sugarcane, refined sugar, and other crops were Hispaniola's primary economic output. So sugar played a role throughout Haiti's history. The vast majority of Hispaniola's crops were worked by slave labor. One of the first major slave revolts occurred in San Domingo in 1521 on sugar plantations belonging to the son of Columbus, Don Diego Colon. From the remainder of the 16th century, the Caribbean Sea was crawling with pirates and maritime outlaws looking to get a hold of the white powder. Sugar, of course. Spain became increasingly concerned with piracy because pirates cut into state-sanctioned legitimate business practices. Philip II of Spain ordered the inhabitants of Hispaniola to relocate closer to Santo Domingo, which was a mistake because that left parts of the island now largely uninhabited and left openings for other settlers, namely the English and French, but particularly the French. In fact, the western half of Hispaniola basically became a safe haven for pirates. It's la free real estate. The Spanish were using slave labor to work their crops. Those slaves were mostly the native Taino people or other natives from nearby South and Central America. Plus, the Spanish had other, more lucrative colonies in the Americas, extracting gold and other precious metals. France decided to better compete with their colonial rivals. The Treaty of Ryswick in 1697 formally ceded Western Hispaniola to the French, which was named Saint-Domingue. Fair warning to my French-speaking listeners. Look, my French is probably just as bad, if not worse, than my Russian, so hopefully you get a good laugh out of this. If you're really good at language, you may have noticed that Saint-Domingue and the Spanish city of Santo Domingo are similar. That's because they are the equivalent French and Spanish names for Saint Dominic, a Catholic saint who, when alive, founded the Dominican Order. He's the patron saint of astronomers and natural scientists. 
The French went all in on resource extraction in Saint-Domingue. They were going to grow so much sugarcane, no beating off allowed. Following the footsteps of Spanish colonizers, sugar was the main export as well as tobacco and the seaward. I'm talking about soft, fluffy cotton. They also exported coffee and instead of using indigenous populations as slaves, the French imported Africans via the transatlantic slave trade. Let's understand more about slavery overall before refocusing on Saint-Domingue. The concept of slavery is seemingly as old as human history. In biblical times, one could end up enslaved if captured in battle, born into a lineage of slaves, or fall into debtor slavery, meaning somebody performed labor without monetary compensation to settle unpaid debts. Basically, there were multiple paths to unpaid hard labor in trash conditions. In the modern vernacular, some people use the term wage slavery to refer to low wages that are so stagnant it severely hinders the ability of people working these jobs to get ahead. But if you ask probably most, if not all Americans, who aren't at least recent immigrants, the word slave likely invokes images of southern plantations, chains, and whips. Slavery for us brings the concept of race to a rolling boil. But it might surprise you that the slave trade had a decent amount of assistance from other Africans. Within the transatlantic slave trade, Europeans would sail from Europe to ports along the West African coast from modern-day Sierra Leone, Ghana, Togo, Cameroon, Gabon, Congo, and perhaps parts of Angola. These regions of Africa were much more developed than I think the American education system tends to portray. See, Africans had caste systems, haves and have-nots, if you will, just like any other large group of humans. Europeans imported guns, metals, and other goods to these societies in exchange for humans. For example, in the late 17th century, disagreement over the rightful successor to the Congolese throne ignited a civil war. The war divulged into a bloody free-for-all, with various tribes fighting for power. By the time the war ended, many of the Bakongo ethnic group were tossed into the abyss of what was the transatlantic slave trade. Some people in the lower castes could be bound by servitude to a chief who could exchange them for European goods. This is definitely an aspect of the slave trade I did not know about before this episode, and it's difficult to wrap my head around the idea of Africans selling other Africans into this system. But, you know, look no further to the more recent ethnic clashes between Hutus and Tutsis, and maybe then this isn't that difficult to believe. That being said, I wonder how many African leaders who sold their captives to Europeans knew what would happen to those they exiled. Point is, Europeans did not dock their ships to go then capture Africans. Instead, Europeans relied on African middlemen to capture people for enslavement on the other side of the world. It's estimated that about 40% of the slaves on Hispaniola came from Congo. On board a slave ship, masses of people were packed and arranged like an overcrowded cemetery. Disease festered in these dark and damp spaces. It's estimated that during the slave trade's 400-year existence, between 12.5 and 15 million men, women, and children were shipped from Africa to the Americas. Somewhere between 12 to 15% died in transit or roughly 1.5 million to 2.3 million people dead. Of course, it's difficult to get precise data due to how long ago this occurred. Brazil, the country where yours truly was born, received about 41% of the share of slaves. The Caribbean, including Saint-Domingue, received 48%. And it may shock Americans to know that the U.S. received about a mere 5%. Now, when you add up those numbers, there is 6% of the survivors missing, and I'm honestly not sure what happened to that share. 
Once slave ships arrived at port, the survivors were literally auctioned off like livestock. This type of slavery is called chattel slavery because slaves were considered their master's legal property. And it's no coincidence that the words chattel and cattle have the same Latin root. And the slaves were treated as such upon purchase having a searing hot branding iron pressed into their flesh. In San Domingue, slaves were made to labor from dawn till dusk, planting, harvesting, and processing sugarcane about 10 months out of the year. The work required them to carry heavy bags of manure on uneven and steep terrain to fertilize fields. Harvesting was done quickly because, in the hot and humid conditions, sugarcane spoiled in little time. Processing the cane was dangerous work. Like we discussed, the basic principles include crushing and grinding down the cane to separate the juice for boiling. Slaves sometimes got their hands caught in the gears or rollers of these old and man-powered machines. A hatchet was on standby to sever the crushed appendage from the body. Sugarcane juice boiled in open vats, releasing heat and vapors inside sweltering warehouses. It wasn't uncommon for slaves to work 48-hour shifts during harvest season. Saint-Domingue's Africans were reminded of their place on a regular basis. Due to the dangerous work and appalling treatment, the life expectancy of a slave was about one year, so more had to be imported. Or, if the slave master wanted to save money, male and female slaves would be encouraged to produce offspring, tragically born into this hellish situation. However, over time, the African descendants born on Hispaniola would develop slight advantages. Later generations learned to speak Creole, the linguistic offspring of French and several African dialects, and newly arrived slaves obviously didn't know the language. Creoles diverged from new slaves in other ways as well. They had much more social clout, and the group had each other's backs. Creole people were more likely to work jobs closer to the master, not necessarily the dangerous, backbreaking work in the sugar mills. Creoles were also more likely to be emancipated. Some historians that study this time period and part of the world point out that despite this speciation of language and culture, the distinctions were still much more gradient than clear-cut. Saint-Domingue also had an interesting social hierarchy. The landowning white people, or big whites, were at the top. Next were the non-landowning white people, or little whites, who were of European descent and didn't own land, but because of the color of their skin, they were considered higher than the darker people, but beneath the white upper class. The big and little whites totaled about 40,000 people. The white population owned about 70% of the economic wealth. Next were the people of mixed heritage, like me. Now, these people could be free. Interestingly, there was class division in this group based on land ownership as well. If you're wondering how there were mixed people, well, you're an adult. At least, I hope you are listening to this shit. People intermingled, or it was forced. It wasn't unheard of for a slave owner to impregnate one of his slaves, and actually that could sometimes lead to the mother and child being emancipated. The child of mixed heritage was likely to experience a more prosperous future compared to a newly arrived slave. The mixed people totaled about 28,000 and owned the remaining 30% of the economic wealth. The rest were African slaves who totaled 452,000 and didn't even own themselves. Now, it doesn't take a calculus professor to look at this and think, wow, if there were a slave rebellion, the whites are screwed. If you were a white person defending your property and your life in a slave rebellion, you're looking at an enemy to friendly ratio of about 11 to 1. Even the U.S. Army suggests delaying engagement with a ratio of 6 to 1. This basic math is going to spell doom for the system. Another social element that formed out of this cultural melting pot was religion. Traditional West African religions mixed with Roman Catholicism to create a new religion with such striking imagery that you'd be hard-pressed to forget about it. 
I'm of course talking about Vodou. Vodou, a word in the Fon and Eve language, meaning spirit or god, is considered an African diaspora or African-derived religion. Enslaved Africans on Hispaniola continued the religious traditions brought from their home country. With the intermingling of cultures, Catholicism folded into these African traditions. You may have caught that I said Vodou instead of Voodoo, and that's because voodoo is kind of a pop cultural headline or theme specifically in New Orleans to market products to tourists. Think voodoo IPA. But New Orleans voodoo also refers to people in Louisiana who can trace their lineage back to Hispaniola and the slave trade. To make things more interesting and perhaps complicated, some enslaved Africans brought to Hispaniola already Africanized derivations of Christianity since Christian beliefs were introduced to Africa long before the slave trade. So with all this blending going on, it's important to keep in mind that those who practice Vodou are not a monolith, right? Different families may have slight deviations in beliefs and practices, like Catholics, for example. There are gradients and spectrums between families in the same religious groups. What does Vodou teach? What do the practitioners believe? In Vodou, it is believed there is one god or spiritual being that is a distant entity rather than a personal god. The Lawa are saint-like or smaller deities that one can appeal to for different reasons. A Lawa for loss, grief, love, etc. There are Vodou temples that hold services which are run by a priest. Intricate markings are drawn around a sacred center pole to summon a specific Lawa. There's dancing, chanting, drumming, and sometimes what looks like possession of people by the Lawa, or at least that's how sources describe the experience. Vodou has been depicted for centuries in media as a demonic religion. A quick Google search of are there demons in Vodou gives you results and commenters with some fun things to say about Vodou. Like Joe Amaro on Quora who says, Vodou is a tool for demons to bind you. Sure, why not? Other people point out that Hollywood has spun Vodou to be demonic to scare the shit out of white Protestants. I mean, the rituals, I think, would make even like a secular person feel uncomfortable because, you know, most of us haven't been exposed to voodoo. Seriously, look up the rituals on YouTube. They get rowdy. And speaking of Hollywood, can you guess the one monster we are probably all too familiar with? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Once again, the great industrial city is under siege by the living dead. Everywhere, business is disrupted and stores are closed. Citizens flee their homes and city as a general evacuation is called after an evening attack by rotting corpses who once again walk the earth. In Vodou, it is believed that the body is controlled by two souls, one called the Tibonage that controls consciousness and another called Grobonage, which controls motor function. If after death a person's consciousness soul wanders away or is captured, only the biomechanical soul is left, and the person becomes a rotting walking corpse. A zombie. Saint-Domingue's enslaved population developed a distinctive culture, but their treatment at the hands of French colonists ranged from the harsh to the sadistic. King Louis XIV decreed the Code Noir, or Black Codes, that set just punishments for slaves who stepped out of line. For example, the most common form of punishment was the whip. The Code Noir indicated how many lashings should be permitted depending on the severity of the infraction. I imagine there was at least one slave master who was just incensed by the Code Noir. Like, damn government coming in and rag you latent how i use my whip no sherry bob i use my whip how i darn want to i don't know why a french slave owner would sound like that but why not 
Other slave masters were more creative with their punishments. Whips tended to tear and slice human skin, leaving open wounds. Sadistic slave owners rubbed salt into the wounds, doused troublesome slaves with boiling liquids, or burned them alive. One of my sources claimed that one slave's orifices, which I assumed to mean either mouth or anus, was stuffed with gunpowder and a fuse. The poor bastard was blown to bits. Escaped slaves, known as maroons, if recaptured, were branded or just straight up executed. Other punishments included being buried alive or soaked with sugarcane juice to let bugs and flies crawl in exposed skin and devour a person one tiny bite at a time. And we haven't even gotten to the dark stars of this episode yet. Ironically, the Code Noir established limited legal protections for slaves against their masters who were excessively cruel. Many brutal slave masters were shipped back to France and had their plantations seized, but actually I made that up. Yeah, despite codes handed down by the King of France, Saint-Domingue's courts often looked the other way when it came to the slaves' many grievances. One case in particular demonstrated a complete failure of the Code Noir to uphold basic slave protections against the worst of the worst slave owners, like slave master and full-time piece of shit, Nicolas Lejeune. Lejeune owned a coffee plantation in the northern region of Saint-Domingue. He garnered a reputation among his peers for being a titch brutal. You know, because even with everything I just told you, even Lejeune made his peers go. Bruh. One source claimed that Lejeune's slaves, in fact, died at a higher rate than slaves on other plantations. It was difficult to put solid numbers on that, since, again, this happened so long ago, and I couldn't identify another source to verify the claim. A group of Lejeune's slaves gave testimony to those courts making a half-assed attempt to enforce the slave protections. When Lejeune found out about the testimony, he had them executed by a method called the wheel. And again, if descriptions of violence bother you, skip ahead about 15 or 30 seconds. The wheel consisted of the victim being bound to a giant wagon wheel by their wrists and ankles. Both arms and both legs were broken using blunt force. The victim was then left to die either in a matter of hours or an agonizing few days. A common fear among slave owners was death by the hands of their slaves. Poisoning was a particular concern, and Lejeune most definitely feared being poisoned, understandably so. I wish somebody had poisoned him. In March 1788, Lejeune suspected he was the intended victim of a plot to kill him. His reaction was to execute about six slaves he suspected to be plotting his death. How this unfolded was that 14 of Lejeune's slaves appealed to the court in Saint-Domingue's administrative center called La Cap. In front of a judge, these 14 brave souls accused Lejeune of executing four slaves and torturing two. The court figured, oh boy, we get a lot of complaints about Lejeune. Officers investigated Lejeune's plantation and found two women chained to metal collars inside a dungeon-like structure on the property. Their legs were charred and missing whole sections of flesh like somebody took a bite. Lejeune had set their legs on fire and allowed them to burn. Neither woman was found to be in possession of poison, and both died due to their injuries. The court found this incident so egregious that Lejeune was arrested and taken to trial. During the trial, Lejeune deflected from his actions and made the case that if he were to be convicted and face consequences for what he did to those women, the slaves would come after the rest of them. Lejeune said, quote, There is not a single colonist who's not been alarmed at the bold action of my slaves. Who does not fear that another such event will cause a violent outburst? And who does not shudder at the thought of my slaves winning the case? The possible consequences are enormous. My cause in this case is the case of every colonist. 
The unhappy condition of the slaves leads them to naturally hate us. It is only by force and violence that they can be controlled. It is not fear of the law or its justice that keeps the slaves from stabbing the owner. It is their awareness of the master's absolute power over them. If you remove this restraint, there is nothing that they will not dare." End quote. Lejeune wasn't wrong in the very worst way possible. He was pointing out the fact that Saint-Domingue's society was built on fear and coercion for free labor. I personally think Lejeune was an unhinged psychopath who tortured for funsies and knew that he had decent odds of getting away with it. He knew no white colonist in their right mind would dare set the slaves on a path to either emancipation or violent rebellion. In Lejeune's mind and the minds of the other slave owners, if their slaves got radical and organized, it would likely be torture and death for them. Allowing slaves the ability to deviate from their roles would just upset the fabric of Saint-Domingue. Other slave owners, in fact, came to Lejeune's aid by sending a petition to the court judge expressing their concern. Ultimately, Lejeune was acquitted of all charges despite the prosecution's evidence against him, despite the Code Noir providing clear guidance for punishment in this case. He didn't receive so much as a fine. He didn't even admit to not killing four people and torturing the other two. See, the society on Saint-Domingue was structured in such a way that the risk of rebellion was low but never zero. Brutality kept that risk low. If slaves from other plantations saw the court giving punishment to a white man, their owners feared what else the slaves may try. For the slaves, the message was loud and clear. Freedom would need to be taken by force. Their only option was mass rebellion. Ironically, the system provided the slaves with favorable numbers, and the slave owners themselves made some crucial mistakes. First is that most slave owners allowed one day off work, typically Sundays, so the slaves could attend mass. Church service was often directly after the white service, and led by a black priest. And the whites complained of the black services being full of singing and dancing a, quote, raucous affair, according to some sources. It was the 17th century equivalent of a Karen unironically complaining about rap music. Slaves were also allotted specific plots of land to grow their own food. According to the great research done by the Perspectives in History podcast, slave owners attempted to cut costs by allowing their slaves to grow food on a small piece of land. This was cheaper than feeding slaves from the owner's own food supply, unless there was a famine. Both church and communal farming gave the slave population a chance to assemble. You might be thinking, but Jack, how is attending mass and gardening dangerous? Well, the slave owners were thankfully dumbasses because granting these privileges meant the slaves congregated. Where there's a congregation of oppressed people, there is talking, there is organizing. This is what kept Lejeune up at night. I think I told this story in one of the Russia episodes, but to drive home this point about congregation, in May 2008, Myanmar's southern region was slammed by a powerful cyclone named Nargis, or Nargis. Um, many fishermen and farmers live in this region, and the cyclone killed about 138,000 people and completely flooded or otherwise destroyed villages. Myanmar then was run by Kim Jong-il wannabe General Tan Shui, whose military government deliberately stalled international aid and dispersed pockets of people who sought refuge in temples and schools. Why? A crowd of people might talk about how crappy their government is and attempt a rebellion. Disperse the crowds, keep people isolated, reduce their power in numbers. Thankfully, the slave owners in Saint-Domingue didn't understand this. The second item, the Maroons, or slaves who escaped from their owners, fled to Saint-Domingue's high mountain peaks and evaded slave catchers. Maroons often launched guerrilla raids on plantations just to be an itch the slave owners couldn't scratch. 
The Maroons provided an example to the remaining slaves that rebellion was possible, and this is how you did it. Third item. Events far beyond the shores of Saint-Domingue would influence its slave revolt. Because France was somewhat into revolutions herself. Without getting too far in the weeds on the French Revolution, France erupted into revolution partly due to the immense wealth inequality that existed between the well-to-do clergy, the wealthy nobility, and everybody else. The Enlightenment movement questioned the God-given authority of the king and argued that power should be instead vested in the people. Some Enlightenment thinkers also called into question France's colonial engagements with respect to slavery. Now, ironically, though the critical frameworks of Enlightenment were incompatible with slavery, some thinkers used the same framework to justify abhorrent ideas about other races. For example, Voltaire viewed other human races as separate species from whites entirely. So much for that enlightenment. Just turn off the lights again. Both critics and proponents of slavery agreed that if slavery were to cease in the colonies, that it should be done gradually due to the risk of slave revolt. It was easier said than done to get rid of slavery altogether because sectors of the French economy relied on trade revenues generated from the colonies. Despite the horror stories heard on the street, people were willing to look the other way. Before you say, wow, that's messed up, bruh, I'd say, yeah, it is. And what is different about that to us using our phones? I mean, they're made using essential minerals mined by children in Congo and manufactured in soul-crushing factories in China. I'm guilty too, man. My phone is sitting on my desk right now. I'm literally looking at it. Yeah, there are some obvious differences between back then and now, but we as societies are often willing to ignore pain in other parts of the world for our own comforts. Planters from Saint-Domingue petitioned the government in France for a seat at the legislative body, the Estates General. They had to amend their petition a couple times to join the legislature, but they were eventually successful. Each estate carried one vote, and the system favored estates one and two, i.e. the clergy and the nobility, because they were basically on the same team. The dirty, filthy peasantry of the third estate got shafted in this system because the first two estates always beat them two to one. Eventually, the third estate broke off from the estates general entirely and met in a tennis court to declare themselves the true representative sovereigns of France. 17 representatives from Saint-Domingue were in attendance. Not everybody was thrilled that the colony was represented. Notably, none of Saint-Domingue's reps were black, which probably doesn't surprise any of you. That's significant, though, because even the free black people who owned property and paid taxes were not admitted, taxation without representation. King Louis XVI continued to make unpopular choices, and the people stormed the Bastille Fortress in full revolt. Before the days of social media, it took a second for news to spread, but it did eventually make its way to Saint-Domingue's shores. The spirit of revolution made the slave owners' buttholes clench. August 1789, Saint-Domingue's representatives in Paris authored a letter to their colonial constituents. It reads, quote, Gentlemen and dear compatriots, people here are drunk with liberty. A society of zealots that has taken the name Friends of the Blacks openly attacks us in its publications. It is waiting for a favorable moment to create an anti-slavery explosion. If we just mention the word, that 
might be enough for them to demand the emancipation of our slaves. Our fear of this forces us reluctantly to keep silent. The time is not right to ask the National Assembly to collaborate with us in preventing the danger that threatens. It is up to you, gentlemen, to decide on the course to follow in such a critical situation. The peril is great and it is imminent. Watch over our safety, but do so with prudence. We must not lose our heads. Let us not awaken the enemy, but do not be taken by surprise. The National Assembly is too preoccupied with the internal affairs of the kingdom to be able to think about us. We are warning Americans everywhere to fly to the defense of their country. Most, no doubt, will take ship. Only a few of us will go with them until everyone has gathered together. Take the precautions that your wisdom suggests to you. Pay close attention to people and their actions. Arrest suspicious persons. Seize writings in which even the word freedom appears. Redouble your guard over your plantations, towns, and villages. Everywhere win over the free people of color. Be suspicious of those who arrive from Europe. It is one of your greatest misfortunes that it has not been possible in such critical circumstances to prevent the embarkation of those who were in France. We asked the minister of the colonies to do so. The spirit of the time is opposed to our wishes in this matter. To prevent the embarkation of slaves, even at our request, would be regarded as an act of violence that should be denounced to the nation. Be of good courage, dear compatriots. The time will surely come when we can do better. We must let tempers cool down. This crisis will not last. Count on us. End quote. Signed by the deputies for Saint-Domingue. And when they say Americans, they don't mean like people from the US. They're talking about Americans as in people who are colonists in the Americas. There was an attempt to control the flow of information, but it was no use. Word of revolution came by sailors and soldiers from France. Hard to contain stuff like that, right? No matter what medium of information transfer us humans have lived in, people talk. Slaves overheard whisperings of the revolution. Literate slaves would have disseminated revolutionary literature through their social networks. Liberty, equality, fraternity resonated with the slaves, and can you blame them? The big and small white groups quarreled amongst themselves based on their own priorities. The big whites wanted to take advantage of the situation in France to become independent and keep their lifestyle. The little whites wanted to erode the big whites' power. The big whites allied themselves with the small whites to form a colonial assembly which held elections and established voting rights to people who didn't even own property. But, and you may want to sit down for this, the rules didn't extend to black people. I know, shocked me too. The colonial assembly governed from a town called St. Mark, which sits midway on the coast of the Gulf of Joanov. But just a few weeks after the assembly's first meeting, the big whites convened their own assembly up north in Le Cap with blackjack and hookers without the colonial government's permission. I'm actually not sure about the blackjack and hookers, but they did seek to form an alliance with their Paris representatives to secure a favorable position. They did not want to break from France. Now, the assembly in St. Mark mostly consisted of small to mid-sized indigo and coffee farmers. Think of them as your tech startups or small cap businesses. The Big Whites assembly in La Cap was more your Amazons, Googles, and Facebooks. Big time sugar plantations with connections. These two assemblies fundamentally disagreed with each other on the future of Saint-Domingue. 
free people of color were observing this situation, scratching their heads like, how can we get in on this revolution stuff? A group of freed property owners appeared in Paris to make their case, but that did not go over so well. The concern was that giving rights to even freed black property owners today meant the same for slaves tomorrow. And remember, there is a lot of money tied up in the slave system. There was a compromise made known as the Compromise of March 8th, whereby all citizens over 25 who met specific criteria for property ownership were eligible to vote. Problem was, this kicked the work of defining who counted as a citizen back to the colonial assemblies in St. Mark and La Cap. The big whites were indifferent to the goals of freed black property owners, and the small whites refused to share rights with people they viewed as inferior. And just a quick recap to keep this straight. The freed black property owners had property ownership in common with the big whites, the big whites had skin color in common with the little whites, or small whites. Not all small whites owned property. Remember, they were more likely to be white laborers with better and safer jobs than the slaves. So freed black property owners were having a difficult time finding allies in Saint-Domingue's white population. But they managed to convince the colonial administration to send soldiers to break up the St. Mark assembly. Many of those members escaped back to France. A property-owning black man named Vincent Auger appealed to the powers in Paris to essentially make a case for an alliance for all property-owning people against a slave revolt. Paris was impressed with Auger, partly because white people were astonished by this black guy's eloquent speech, but unfortunately they refused to take action. In fact, they interpreted Auger's plea as a veiled threat. Either we all join together or we'll rebel. Funny how they were shocked by Auger's way with words, but completely missed the point. Frustrated, Auger moved to Great Britain to gather support and money from his network of slavery abolitionists. Then he traveled to the U.S. to purchase weapons. Then Auger returned to Saint-Domingue to start some shit. Auger wrote to the sole remaining colonial assembly in Le Cap, asking for their rights to be recognized. Le Cap dispatched militiamen to arrest Auger and his small force. Auger was defeated due to limited training and small numbers. He and some close supporters escaped to Spanish-controlled Santo Domingo, but the Spanish authorities captured and exiled them back to San Domingue. Auger and his compatriots were subject to prolonged agony on the wheel, their limbs broken into pieces, and their heads severed and stuck on pikes, displayed as a warning to those who challenged colonial authority. One account tells that Auger, being a politician first and not a soldier, broke down and begged his French tormentors for forgiveness while strapped to the wheel. Part of Auger's failure was the decision not to arm the slaves who, as we discussed, made up the vast majority of Saint-Domingue's population. Auger decided to ignore them as a move to distance himself from accusations that he desired a full-fledged slave revolt. And did he ever pay for that mistake? Think of this from the slaves' point of view. Not even the property-owning black people could obtain rights via legal or violent means. Look at the math. When the benefits of revolt outweigh the consequences, there's just one answer. The slaves learned that small, uncoordinated uprisings would be stamped out. In the years and months leading up to August 1791, slaves in La Cap bided their time and quietly coordinated. On August 21st, leaders from various slave plantations met in secret in the middle of a tropical storm to hold a vodou ceremony led by priestess Cecile Fatiman to initiate the rebellion. One of the leaders, Dutty Bukman, an escaped slave from Jamaica who, on more than one occasion, faced punishment for teaching slaves to read, hence his surname. He led a group of Maroons in Saint-Domingue 
and gained experience doing hit-and-run attacks on plantations. It's said that he drank the blood of a sacrificed pig during the ritual and uttered the following prayer, quote, The God who created the earth, who created the sun that gives us light, the God who holds up the ocean, who makes the thunder roar, our God who has ears to hear, you who are hidden in the clouds, who watch us from where you are. You see all that the white has made us suffer. The white man's gods ask him to commit crimes, but the God within us wants to do good. Our God, who is so good, so just, he orders us to revenge our wrongs. It's he who will direct our arms and bring us the victory. He who will assist us. We all should throw away the image of the white man's God, who is so pitiless. Listen to the voice for liberty that speaks in all our hearts." End quote. That's some Pulp Fiction finishing move shit right there. There are variations of the statement online if you look it up. The ritual event has a lot of perceived significance, but historians are divided on if this actually happened. But here's something that did happen. In the dead of night, on August 24th, 1791, slaves in the outskirts of Le Cap rushed into the forests of sugarcane with torches and set the fields on fire. The blaze and column of smoke signaled to other plantations to move into action. From one plantation to another, slaves rose up, murdered their masters, set houses on fire, set fields ablaze, destroyed processing mills. Mobs of slaves roamed the streets with guns, torches, and other weapons in search of people and things to burn. Once a distant plantation slave saw the glow and the smoke, they'd followed suit by killing their masters, destroying mills, busting storage facilities, and joined the main procession. The smoke in Le Cap was so thick that day felt like night. White refugees fled into Le Cap's urban center from the outskirts. The slaves pursued and killed any white person they got their hands on. Men, women, and children. Men were strapped to the wheel, limbs bashed, broken, and severed, heads stuck on pikes. Women were brutalized on top of the dead bodies of their families, although some historians claim the slaves were much more restrained in their violence. Officials in Saint-Domingue thought they could put the uprising down like they did with Vincent Auger, but that assumed the slaves would participate in battle tactics matching their own. The slaves engaged in asymmetric warfare, picking off rows of French soldiers from buildings or dense forests operating in small fire teams, eroding French concentrations of troops. Fear penetrated Saint-Domingue. Plantation owners started executing their own slaves, even if they had not yet rebelled. But this backfired, of course, because that only encouraged the slaves to defend themselves by violent means. Dutty Bookman was killed, head severed and put on a pike, and his body burned. Bookman's role was filled by three commanders, Jean-Francois Papillon, Georges Biassou, and Jeannot Boulet, each with their own army. A few notes on these guys. Jean-Francois was said to be very intelligent. He escaped from slavery, joined a group of maroons, and showed a lot of bravery and integrity. Georges Biassou was a firecracker and always ready for a drunken brawl. Both Papillon and Biassou, as slaves, occupied relatively privileged positions as far as slave work goes. Then there was the problem child. Jeannot Boulet, who is said to have been a sick, sadistic son of a bitch. His level of cruelty disgusted even the most ardent rebel slaves. A group of white people captured by Jeannot were marched through a torchlit gauntlet of dead bodies while they were beaten and insulted. The captives were chained to a pole and whipped continuously until dead or mutilated. Some had their throats slit and strung up upside down on trees to bleed out like butchered hogs. One captive wrote that they were about to be executed by means of being roasted over a fire. Suddenly, he heard soldiers clash in the distance. Instead of Sandemang's army, 
inroad Jean-Francois Papillon, who found Jeannot's actions disgusting. Jeannot was then himself tied to a pole and shot. If you look up the Haitian Revolution on Wikipedia, you'll notice that Papillon and Biasu are listed as leaders, but not Jeannot, which, I don't know, that's interesting to me, but maybe not significant. What would have been interesting is to have Jeannot, Boulet, and Nicolas Lejeune do a cage match. I should also mention that the Spanish played a part in supplying the slaves with weapons and supplies from Santo Domingo. Spain even recruited some of the slave rebellion's leadership into the Spanish army, including former slave Toussaint Louverture, who was an educated individual who ironically owned slaves himself. Great Britain also got in on the chaos because of their centuries-long beef with France. But sources indicate the Big Whites actually appealed to the British government since they didn't believe France's new government would be helpful. Louverture appealed to the colonial government in Saint-Domingue, offering peace in exchange for freedom for each member of the rebellion's leadership and an end to the harsh treatment on plantations such as lashings. Insane, right? He didn't even demand an end to slavery. The colonial government took this offer and were basically like, nah, this isn't good enough. The British government deployed their navy to Saint-Domingue, and both her and Spain allied against France. But their goals and ideas for the island's future diverged and likely didn't include the best interests of the uh, island's inhabitants. Meanwhile, Louverture and the rebellion leadership defected from Spain, then ejected Spanish people from Saint-Domingue, and rejoined the French to fight the British. The British spent 1793 to 1798 sinking money and manpower into an unpopular conflict with Saint-Domingue. The Brits captured Port-au-Prince in 1794, but by 1798, Louverture worked out a peace treaty that returned Saint-Domingue to France, and the British made their merry way back to play cricket, enjoy the rain, and read Dickens. Freedom from the bondages of slavery did not mean peace. In fact, Saint-Domingue headed for uphill battles against colonial powers and internal scheming. The civil war between Louverture's forces in the north clashed for control with a southern faction led by André Rigaud. Louverture was victorious by 1800, but he had bigger problems. Napoleon had taken control of France and was bent on restoring the colonies and, you know, conquer stuff. But conquering requires money. Lots of it. Where could that money possibly come from? Saint-Domingue. Then, Louverture reinstated the plantations. He needed money to keep his power and this ship sailing, right? And he's basically sitting on a cash cow. But he didn't reinstate slavery, no. Instead, Louverture reinstated... Oh my gosh, guys. It's peaches compared to slavery. Forced labor. So there's no whip. No. No master? No. No lashes? Nope. No sugarcane? Well, there's some sugarcane, but did I mention no lashes? So it's like slavery. Not at all, chum. You get paid. That's more than some interns make in 2023. I'm sorry, what? Nothing. Sorry. Uh, here's three shilling. Wow. Now get to work. Okay, uh, but who's this? Uh, this? This is Big Sal. Why does he have a gun? Oh, Sal just keeps it pointed at your head to make sure you're working. What? You're not even going to notice he's there. Not even kidding about this, guys. Come on. It's not slavery. It's forced labor. Then Louverture established a constitution that named him governor for life, an eerie foreshadow of what's to come. Louverture was pissing people off left and right, near and far, including Napoleon, who sent troops to deal with Saint-Domingue. A commander by the name of Jean-Jacques Dessalines clashed with Napoleon's forces in 1802 and was defeated. However, Dessalines backstabbed Louverture by joining French forces. Louverture was later deported to France and died in prison. When it became obvious the French wanted to reinstate slavery in Saint-Domingue, another uprising ensued. 
Dessalines was Johnny on the spot to defect from the French to lead his fellow countrymen. A former slave himself, who was liberated during the initial slave rebellion, Dessalines didn't want to experience a return of French oppression. Dessalines defeated French forces who made their merry way back to sip wine, sharpen guillotines, and protest. Dessalines had free reign to then turn right round and have a massacre of his own by eliminating the remaining French white people in Saint-Domingue. In January 1804, with independence won from France, Hispaniola was renamed to its native Taino Arawak title of Haiti or Haiti. Dessalines declared himself Emperor Jacques I and subjected the country to military dictatorship. Unfortunately, this leadership pattern would continue. Now let's take a moment to hear from our friend Frank from the Empire's podcast, The Ottomans. Hey there, I'm Frank, the creator and host of Empire's podcast, The Ottomans. Join me as I bring you a blow-by-blow, decade-by-decade, continuous historical narrative about the Ottoman Empire. What you're getting with Empire's podcast, The Ottomans, isn't some flashy YouTube vid or Battlefield fanboy club. You're getting hours upon hours of raw research, distilled down into episodes, alive with historical facts, personalities, and compelling events. Whether you're mowing the grass, driving to work, working out, or cleaning those dirty dishes, I invite you to set the world aside for 25 minutes and enter the age of the Grand Turco. Empire's podcast, The Ottomans, is available wherever your favorite podcast show is found. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out Empire's podcast, The Ottomans, I'll have a link in the episode notes. Now let's see what's going on in Haiti. From Dessalines' declaration of emperor, we are going to fast forward through about the next hundred years with some stops along the way. 1806, Dessalines, a.k.a. Jacques I, was assassinated. Haiti diverged into two factions, one which governed the north and another that governed the south. Later, Jean-Pierre Boyer reunited Haiti and incorporated territory that would later become the Dominican Republic. Haiti appealed to France for official recognition of sovereignty. France was like, yeah, man, but it'll cost you. France slipped Haiti a bill to the tune of about 112 million francs, or nearly $600 million today, and had the audacity to request a tip. Boyer was like, sure, fine, whatever. Haiti didn't fulfill its debt obligations to France until 1947. If you're wondering why such a wealthy, extractive economy such as Haiti couldn't pay back its debts, well, that's a fair question. I wondered the same thing. It's difficult to pin the precise answer. So me speculating, to be completely honest, I'm thinking that because Haiti experienced a massive and violent upheaval, plus the disruption to the slave trade meant that Haiti did not have the luxury of many, if any, trading partners. So despite the abundance of valuable resources, commodities were not processed and put on the market. Next, I'm thinking about who is supposed to perform that labor. Former slaves expected to revisit and work in places of torment to perform the same work. Whatever the economic factors, that doesn't change the fact that Haiti was extorted for cash. Cash that helped pay for constructing the Eiffel Tower. That's not to hate on the tower. I've been there, walked up the stairs. If you have the chance, go visit. I I think it's worth it. Unfortunately, the tower itself, of course, can't help having been funded by less than scrupulous means. 1844, the Dominicans declared independence from Haiti, and several military attempts to recapture that part of the island failed. Jumping ahead to 1915, 
the Americans became sus that the Germans were up to no good in the Caribbean. So the United States Marines deployed to Haiti and occupied the country until 1934, when the Americans made their merry way back to eating hamburgers, going to church, and firing off a few rounds. Then in 1937, neighboring Dominican Republic was taken over by dictator Rafael Tujillo, who initiated an ethnic cleansing of the republic's Haitian population. We stopped at 1937, so let's now rewind just 30 years to explore the life of today's dictator, Francois Duvalier. Francois Duvalier was born on April 14, 1907, in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. His mother, Ulysia Abraham, was a baker, and his father, Duval Duvalier, was a justice of the peace. According to Elizabeth Abbott, author of Haiti, A Shattered Nation, little Francois was raised by his aunt, Madame Florestal. Growing up, Francois contracted Yaw's disease, a bacterial infection endemic to tropical regions. Typically, yaws results in non-cancerous growths on the skin that grow and form a crust covering the pustules. If left untreated, the infection can spread to cartilage and bone. Yaws disease is insanely rare in the U.S. with less than 1,000 cases per year. Another event that affected Little Frank's childhood was the U.S. occupation of Haiti, started in 1915 when he was about 8 years old. Multiple sources indicate that the Marines were pretty terrible to the local Haitians. Haitian resistance to the Marines was met with a counterinsurgency campaign that brought the deaths of thousands of Haitians. The occupation planted the seeds for black nationalism in Little Frank. Another aspect of this black nationalism came from Haitian society at the time. Much like how mixed-race people enjoyed a higher socioeconomic status than the enslaved in centuries past, a mixed-race minority largely enjoyed the upper echelons of Haitian society. Frank's family was middle-class and part of Haiti's majority black population. They just didn't have the same status as the lighter-skinned upper class. Francois completed a degree in medicine at the University of Haiti in 1934. Yep, this guy was a doctor. He then spent about a year at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to study public health. He specialized in the study of tropical diseases such as yaws and malaria. Upon his return to Haiti, Frank treated patients living in rural areas suffering from these types of tropical infections. And this is an aspect of his life I don't want to downplay. Duvalier was a good doctor. Yaws is very contagious, and many Haitians that didn't have access to antibiotics suffered from this disease. Armed with a medical degree and some penicillin, Dr. Duvalier changed this reality and alleviated a lot of suffering. Over time, Frank's patients began calling him Papa Doc. I wish he had just stuck with being a doctor, but unfortunately, he unleashed a lot of suffering later. Papa Doc still dabbled in black nationalism. He got into an intellectual movement called Negritude, which sought to increase black consciousness across the world population of African diaspora through art and literature. In Haiti, author Jean Price Mars, a key figure in the country's Negritude movement, connected with Papa Doc and they co-founded a journal called Le Griot in 1938. In 1939, he married Simone Ovide. They would go on to have four kids together, Marie Denise, Nicole, Simone, and Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude we'll talk about later. Papadoc had that itch for politics, but didn't get into government until 1946, when then-Haitian President de Marseille Estime appointed Papadoc director of the National Public Health Service. Then, he was appointed Minister of Health and Labor three years later. 
1950, Estime was overthrown in a coup and Papadoc left his government post to continue his practice. But when the new regime became more authoritarian, he went into hiding completely. This new regime, controlled by a man named Paul Magloa, lasted until about 1956. From his self-imposed exile, Papadoc announced his intention to run for president against the Magloa administration. He founded the Parti de l'Unité Nationale, the National Unity Party, or PUN, <laughs> P-U-N, uh, in 1957, as his political platform. They'd probably be best described as a far-right black nationalist party. He focused on gathering support from the largely black population, including poor communities in Haiti's urban centers and rural areas. He also promised to dethrone the mixed-race elite from their perch, which appealed to Haiti's black middle class. So Duvalier really attracted a wide range of supporters. His main opponent, Louis Desjois, was the favored candidate for the mixed-race elite. And to be clear, this group of people would have been referred to as mulattoes, but the term is antiquated. Papadoc won the election with about 72% of the vote on September 22nd, 1957. A month later, on October 22nd, Francois Duvalier was sworn in as president. Papadoc held the number 22 in superstitious regard for the rest of his life. Sources indicate that Papadoc was the least expected candidate to win the election. It should also be noted that there were suspicions that the Haitian army monitored the election and favored Duvalier, but the level of their involvement or any potential interference is unclear. Nevertheless, Duvalier was the dark horse, no pun intended, who seized power. Papadoc was also unlikely because of his character. Sources say that he was soft-spoken, kindly, somewhat charismatic, wore thick-rimmed Malcolm X-like glasses, and wasn't exactly physically imposing. Papa Doc spoke both French and English and gave interviews in both. The civilians only can rule the country, not the military men. The military men has to stay in his barracks and receive order and instructions from the president and from the king, from the emperor. This is my opinion. This is my philosophy. To have peace and stability, you, you, you should have a strong man in every country. Not a dictator, not a dictator, but a strong man. One 1960s documentary I watched for this research showed him giving extensive time to a British journalist and film crew. The doc is linked in the show notes, and it's, um, well, it's, it's old-fashioned, we'll say. It's pretty disgusting how the journalist talks about the Haitian people, especially the Haitian women. The comment section, however, did not disappoint. Here are a few. One commenter says, Haiti wasn't as lawless and crime-ridden when Papa Doc was president. Haiti needs strong leadership. Another comment just says, I love black people. <laughs> and then somebody else said, Ben Carson, if he becomes president. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Ben Carson is a medical doctor and renowned neurosurgeon who ran for president of the United States in 2016 and is proof that you can be brilliant in one field, but still have complete whack nut views when it comes to who or what actually built the pyramids. So that's fun. Most of the comments under this video are like... This video is racist, which it definitely is by any reasonable standard of today. And uh, then comments about the video being fake news or other comments about how Haiti needs another Papa Doc. At first, Papa Doc really did seem like the right leader for Haiti. He was respectful and promoted members of the black majority to positions of power. 
And as a bonus, Duvalier maintained a decent relationship with the United States. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before the warning signs emerged, starting with Papadoc's intolerance for opposition. He had some of Louis de Joie's major supporters exiled from the country. In July 1958, World War II veteran Alex Pesquet, two Haitian military officers, and five American mercenaries staged a coup against Papadoc by seizing a military barracks in Port-au-Prince, hoping to inspire a larger number, a larger number excuse me, of Haitian soldiers to join in an attack on the presidential palace. The numbers failed to materialize, and the plotters were all killed. Papadoc already harbored suspicions about the Haitian army because they were trained by American Marines during the occupation, and some of the army's leadership were pro-American. But there is more to this mistrust of the army. Papadoc understood Haitian history and knew that their leaders never stuck around for very long before being overthrown in a coup by the next dictator. According to the U.S. State Department, of the 12 Haitian leaders between 1879 and 1915, one, Louis Solomon, was overthrown a year into his second term. Another, Florville Hippolyte, died in office. But the other 10 were either overthrown or killed. With nearly each coup, the army had some degree of involvement. Papadoc was well aware of this deadly pattern. And this is just me speculating, but I, I honestly think Papadoc was one of the few people who bothered to look and study Haiti's history of unstable leadership and found the army as the common denominator. And if you ask any doctor, I would hope all of them would say that to be successful, you need to be good at studying. To make matters worse for his early presidency, he didn't have a firm grip on the army. Then, the two Haitian army officers involved in the 1958 coup with Alex Pesquet just cemented PDOC's mistrust of the whole institution. So what did Papadoc do about this problem? First, he solidified a power base in the army by replacing existing officers with new officers who could be loyal to the doc. Duvalier's second move was to create a force loyal only to him who could outnumber and outgun the army and hold first prize for state terror. In 1959, Papadoc organized a militia called the National Security Volunteers, better known as the Tantamakut. Why the Tantanmakut was established is straightforward. Papadoc needed a force loyal to him to counterweight any opposition, especially within the Haitian military. In fact, weapons sold to Haiti from mostly the United States intended for the army ended up in the hands of the Tantanmakut. When Papadoc established this force, it first went by the Congoulards, or hooded men. They also went by the Milice Civile, or civil militia. Officially, they were the Volunteers de la Sécurité Nationale, or VSN, meaning National Security Volunteers. But it wouldn't be until people seemed to disappear without a trace that the Makuts took on a more supernatural aura. Tonton in Haitian Creole means uncle. Makut roughly translates to gunny sack or sack man. The Tonton Makut invokes fear of a mythological boogeyman known as Uncle Gunnysack, who is said to kidnap disobedient children, stuffing them into a burlap sack, whisked away for the uncle's breakfast. When your beliefs are hardwired in Haitian voodoo, a midnight visit from the boogeyman is enough to drain your bladder. The Tonton Makut scooped up their rank and file recruits from the bottom of the societal barrel. Former Haitian army sniper Francois Benoit stated that the Tonton Makut took murderers, thieves, and swaths of other criminals. They were given weapons and ordered to do whatever Papadoc needed. In 1959 alone, it's estimated that the Tonton Makut numbered between 20 to 25,000 members. Some sources estimate 30,000 members. 
or as high as 300,000 members. Whether or not they outnumbered the army is unclear because, unfortunately, troop estimates during Duvalier's presidency seem unreliable at best. A Makut's uniform varied depending on the person's rank. The lower ranks dressed in denim or plain clothes. Higher-ranked Makuts wore dark blue military-style suits, but the signature drip were the dark shades. In much of the footage I watched of these guys, they almost always wore dark aviator-style sunglasses. I'm guessing that you're probably imagining a bunch of men with guns, and while that is accurate, there were also women Makuts as well, who were just as ruthless and capable of wanton violence. We haven't really seen women participate in the brutality of secret police since meeting the Cheka. The Tantum Makut had its own all-female branch called the Filet Lalo, led by Madame Max Adolphe. We'll come back to her in a moment. The Tonton Makut's parent organization was Duvalier's National Unity Party, essentially as the party's paramilitary wing. In addition to placement within the party, the Tonton Makut was led by a government minister who served as both interior and defense minister. It appears that in modern Haiti, minister of interior and defense are now separate entities. The Makut's first chief was a man named Clement Barbeau. Barbeau, born in 1914, was an aide to Duvalier. Then, following Pasquet's coup attempt, Papa Doc put Barbeau in charge of the Makuts. Not much else seems to be known about Barbeau. There are some photos of him online wearing the Makuts' trademark shades and holding a pistol trying to look menacing. He seems like a nice guy, right? 10 out of 10. Would help an old lady across the street. Great with kids, too. Kidding, of course. But building such a force especially one that rivals the Haitian army, takes resources. We're talking weapons and money. Papa Doc turned to American foreign aid for that. I mentioned that Papa Doc initially kept Haiti on favorable terms with the United States. The Eisenhower administration, for example, was aware of Duvalier's abuses of power and anti-American sentiments, but looked the other way. Now, the game changed in 1959 when Fidel Castro overthrew Cuba's government in a communist revolution. For the U.S., Duvalier was an ally of convenience to keep communism out of Haiti. Plus, Papa Doc wasn't exactly a fan of communism either. When John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States, the policy towards Haiti was called into question. Two competing camps took different positions on Duvalier. Some thought the stakes in the Cold War were too high to risk Duvalier's overthrow and risk of a communist takeover similar to that in Cuba. Other advisors urged Kennedy to cease support to Papa Doc's regime. The cold reality was that the U.S. government prioritized containing communism in the Caribbean. Therefore, Papa Doc received the aid he needed, otherwise he could have gone to our adversaries. The U.S. sent millions of dollars of aid to Papa Doc's regime. For example, according to the U.S. State Department's Office of the Historian, quote, the new U.S. ambassador to Haiti, Robert Newbegin, arrived in Port-au-Prince in October 1960 with limited objectives and options. He was there to commit U.S. aid money, $5 million for budgetary support, $4.5 million for balance of payments, support and economic development, and $3 million for additional development projects, end quote. It's difficult to track down exact numbers for the Haitian budget and expenditures for a given year under the Duvalier government, but it is said that about 50% of government revenues went to building the Tantamakut for some period of time. In addition to the funds, the U.S. sent Marines, again, to not occupy, but train the Tantamakut. And one thing I want to improve with this show is to better explain how regimes are financed themselves. 
That might sound boring, especially if you're just interested in the history, but regime financing is really key to any dictator's success or failure. Let's go back to Madame Max Adolf, leader of the Tantamakut's all-female detachment. Born Rosalie Bousquet in Mirabelle, Haiti in September 1925, she first started as a low-ranking officer in the Bakuts. She married Papadoc's health minister, Max Adolf, and impressed Papadoc with her enthusiasm for her work. Papadoc promoted her to warden of a prison called Fort Dimanche, which she operated like her own little domain. Fort Dimanche was a place of death and torture on a daily basis. According to Richard M. Jang, Madame Adolphe invented sadistic sexual tortures, supervised the tortures of children and the elderly, and allegedly filmed some of these interrogations. If that wasn't enough, she also collected a rent check from an unspecified branch of U.S. Special Forces for the use of one of her properties. In public, you'd never guess Madame Adolphe's dark, twisted elements of her personality. The same documentary I mentioned earlier shows her wearing a blue-colored shirt, straw hat hiding most of her hair that she clearly took time to style, and she wore earrings, colorless glasses, and clearly had a commanding presence. She looks like somebody's kindly aunt, but she's concealing an Uzi submachine gun in her hand bag, surrounded by several Tantan Makut men. While the Makuts gained power and prominence, Papadoc quietly managed his type 2 diabetes that developed earlier in his adulthood. Most, if not all, dictators would likely say that any medical condition should be kept on the DL, should your enemies somehow exploit any perceived weakness. Then, in May 1959, Papadoc suffered a heart attack. He was found in his study by an assistant who administered first aid. Papadoc was taken to Cuba to Guantanamo Bay for treatment by us Americans. He was in a coma for nine hours, and some physiological and mental damage must have occurred because multiple sources explained that when he woke up, something was off about the dictator, and things really started to go off the rails. First in 1961, Papadoc made changes to the Haitian constitution and the legislative structure. Next, he held a re-election campaign with himself as the only name on the ballot, and he received 100% of the vote. When he heard about the results, Papadoc said some BS about how he can't disregard the will of the people. Whatever you gotta tell yourself, PPD. While Papadoc was in recovery, Clement Barbeau, head of the Makuts, was made interim president. When Papadoc returned to the presidency, he accused Barbeau of subversion and had him arrested and imprisoned. The Tantam Makut's new leader was a man named Lucknar Cambron. Cambron, born in 1930, was the son of a bank teller and a preacher. He joined Duvalier's government as a messenger, gained a reputation for being cruel, and eventually got appointed as Minister of the Interior and National Defense by PPD. He joined the Tantamakut and became second-in-command behind Barbeau. According to a New York Times article from January 1972, Cambron had several business interests in and outside of Haiti. For example, Cambron was a part owner of Air Haiti, an oil exporting business, a used clothing business and notably was co-owner of an American-owned company called Hemo Caribbean Incorporated. Owned by New York stockbroker Joseph B. Gorenstein, Hemo Caribbean was a for-profit plasmapheresis center which is basically a non-hospital blood bank that collects blood from donors. According to sunbiz.org, which shows corporation records for the state of Florida, Hemo Caribbean is currently inactive, having closed its operations sometime in 1976. Its old corporate address is now occupied 
occupied by a Chase Bank in Miami. How Gorenstein and the chief of the Tontomakut knew each other or how they got into business is unclear. However, Cambrone profited off the sale of cadavers to U.S. medical schools. I can only speculate that some of the bodies shipped to the U.S. for science belong to the victims of the Tontomakut. And I just want to be clear because that would be a massive claim that I have no evidence that Cambrone actually had the victims of the Tontomakut shipped as cadavers. That is pure conjecture on my part. It gets worse. The same New York Times article exposed that Hemocaribbean made four to five dollars per liter of blood net profit and exported five to six thousand liters or nearly 1,600 gallons of human plasma to the United States per month. The idea was to increase the U.S. blood supply of plasma that was in critical shortage at the time. Problem was, most Americans weren't incentivized to donate blood since the compensation to do so often fell short of most people's salaries. That was not a problem in Haiti, where most people made less than $2 a day. Hemocaribbean set up blood centers in Port-au-Prince and paid $3 to donate blood and $5 to donate blood if the donor had a tetanus shot. Hemocaribbean, however, didn't take the necessary sanitary precautions to reduce the risk of contaminating plasma with bloodborne pathogens. Their centers opened from 6.30 a.m. to 10 p.m., and because the money was so good, many Haitians crowded the centers for one to two hours just to be screened and donate blood. People with hepatitis and other diseases like malaria weren't allowed to donate, but only one to two percent of potential donors were rejected due to some inadequate blood properties, such as diseases, low hemoglobin, or the patient was malnourished. Contaminated blood was mixed with non-contaminated blood and shipped to the U.S. in containers, some flown via Air Haiti, for patients in the United States in desperate need of plasma, and then they were infected with whatever pathogens that weren't screened out. Blood was still being collected and shipped to the United States despite HIV's arrival in Haiti, meaning Hemocaribbean likely contributed to the AIDS crisis in the United States. I'm not saying this was a deliberate Tantan Makut operation, especially since I'm not sure what the Duvalier government would gain from harming its biggest ally. But either way, this was a massive failure in national security. For his sale of blood and bodies to the United States, Luckner Kembrown earned himself the moniker the Vampire of the Caribbean. So then what happened to Barbeau? Well, this episode keeps getting crazier by the paragraph. A Papa Doc had Barbeau released from prison, which if you're a dictator, don't do that. You know, just some free advice from me. In April 1963, Papadoc's children were playing outdoors in Port-au-Prince, accompanied by several Makut bodyguards and a chauffeur. Suddenly, one shot killed the chauffeur and another struck one of the guards. The kids were dashed into the back of the car and driven away. Back in his office, Papadoc got the news that somebody attempted to kidnap his children. Riddled with paranoia, he reasoned that, given the details of the incident, one of the Haitian army's top marksmen must have shot the driver and the guard. PPD requested the names of the best snipers in the army. Francois Benoit was on that list. Remember, Benoit provided us the details of how and who the Tantan recruit recruited. Benoit, however, had nothing to do with the plot, but was put in the dock's crosshairs anyway. Benoit only got a little taste of the Tantan Makut's bitter methods. He hid from the Makuts in the Dominican embassy. Pidoc didn't give two sugar shits about diplomacy and had the Makuts, you know, just commit an act of war and storm the embassy in search of Benoit. He dipped out the back door and stayed with the Dominican ambassador. With Benoit safe for the time being, the Makuts went for his family. His father, his wife, and his infant son. A group of armed Makuts arrived at Benoit's home in the late evening. 
They kicked down the door, gunned down Benoit's family, and set the house on fire. The real masterminds behind the attempted kidnapping, Clement Barbeau and his supporters, were all chased down and executed. I came across one story of a cruise ship that sailed into Port-au-Prince Bay to pass by the capital city. Apparently, the passengers gathered on the upper deck to watch a group of the locals jump in the water because some of the cruise passengers tossed coins into the water. A car pulled up at the dock and outstepped several armed makoots who shot the people thrashing in the shallow sea, spewing the glistening water with clouds of blood and floating bodies. The cruise passengers could only look on with horror. And you know there was at least one Karen on that cruise ship who was just beside herself with rage. She probably screamed at the captain, like, I have never seen such filth in my entire life. My children are five and eight. Who's your manager? The captain's like, um, ma'am, I had no idea that was going to happen. The Tantamakut had free reign to inflict state terror. Executions were made public. The bodies left in the heat and humidity for days at a time to show the consequences of deviating from Papadoc's regime. The dictator had an interrogation room built next to his personal residence at the presidential palace. The wall was fitted with a peephole so Duvalier could watch interrogations, probably while jerking his PPD. The Tonton Makut stormed churches, arresting and killing the clergy and congregation as they saw fit. They specialized in the midnight raid where, without warning, your door would be kicked in and you'd be dragged out of bed. It's likely your neighbors would never see you again, nor ever find out what happened. People were taken to prisons like Fort Dimanche, hogtied and beaten. The Tonton Makut monitored laborers in fields cutting sugarcane. Good old-fashioned informers infiltrated various social circles. Papadoc personally performed medical exams for his Makuts, checking their blood pressure and listening to them with his stethoscope, like a fatherly figure taking care of his children. On November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. In Port-au-Prince, Papadoc celebrated the news with glee, but he also saw an opportunity to take his personality cult to literal godlike levels. Papadoc decreed that it was he who killed JFK via a voodoo curse. Okay, well, case closed on that conspiracy theory. Everybody's been looking in the wrong place. It wasn't the CIA or the military-industrial complex, the mob, the Soviets. Don't be so naive. Kennedy was clearly put under a voodoo curse by Papadoc Duvalier. He said so himself. No, I mock this because it's insane, but this elevated people's perception of Papadoc. When you've grown up in that culture and have a set of values and beliefs based in voodoo, you might think Dr. Poptopus isn't messing around. If your ruler can curse the most powerful person on earth, then what could he possibly do to you? Papadoc modeled his image and dress on Baron Samedi, the Lua of the Dead, and wore a top hat and black suit. Think Dr. Facilier, the villain from Princess and the Frog. In fact, according to DisneyFandom.com, Dr. Facilier was supposed to actually be named Dr. Duvalier, but I'm guessing that was too on the nose for Disney. When Papa Doc wasn't chillin' in his palace, he would sometimes stroll about in public with an entourage of Tauntaun Makut bodyguards. He'd travel in a black limo, the license plate displayed the number 22. He'd carry wads of cash and give away money to people like it was candy. With all the US aid and some additional embezzlement, Papa Doc became a multi-millionaire with an estimated net worth of about 80 million dollars. Funds trickled down to his inner circle and then some. Of course, like with Luckner Cambrone, government officials profited from their own businesses. Papadoc declared himself president for life. He declared himself an eternal being. He didn't think himself like Baron Samadhi. He was Baron Samadhi incarnate. 
Sometime in 1964, a new Catholic catechism was published by Duvalier, which in simple terms is a book that establishes fundamental truths for Christians. In it, though, the Lord's Prayer, also known as the Our Father, was rewritten with Papadoc as the focus of the prayer. Papadoc ordered some of his enemies to be decapitated and the heads brought to him. The Tantan Makut was more than happy to provide such a service. He believed that he could speak to the dead and that he could extract secrets and intelligence from the heads of his victims, like, you know, any rational person would. He's basically lost it at this point. One source explains that Papadoc used to sit in a warm bath, donning just his top hat, with the head of an opponent to interrogate it. Okay, I got my bath bombs, bath robe, candles, mood music, and Clement Barbeau. And then I imagine he like pulls the head out of a bloody plastic bag by the hair and sets it on the counter. And then, then maybe he pours himself some wine and also pours the head a glass of wine too. And then he settles in the tub. Ah, so Clement, tell me, how's your family? How are you? It's been a while since we last spoke. I don't know if this is actually what happened to Clement Barbeau after he was killed. Uh, the other thing I imagined was uh, maybe Papa Doc with a pink flowery apron over his suit. Then he's like setting up some stuffed animals and a couple heads around a little table draped with a tablecloth. A little tea set with some fake food while he's talking to himself, pouring some fake tea and a little play mugs. Too much? Uh, to be fair, we discussed how the American media demonized Haitians and voodoo to freak out your average 19th and 20th century American. In the 1960s, the press liked to write sensationalized stories about how PPD studied goat intestines for political guidance, and I really hope that one is true. And honestly, I would put goat gut readings a tier or two down from talking to human heads. Just my humble opinion. Fortunately for Haiti, Papadoc was approaching 60 as 1967 approached, plus he had at least one chronic condition, the diabetes, and had a history of, of uh, heart disease. Time was not on his side. When Papadoc thought about a successor, the only viable candidate was his son, Jean-Claude, or Baby Doc, as he was known. On April 1st, 1971, Papadoc died of natural causes in his bed. Unfortunately, he did not get a death like his namesake, Dr. Facilier, by being dragged to the underworld, kicking and screaming by angry voodoo spirits. His son, Baby Doc, took his father's throne at the age of just 19. The Tantan Makut remained a fixture in the Haitian government. Lucknar Cambron expressed interest in becoming prime minister in Baby Doc's government. Unlucknar for him, he was exiled by Baby Doc's mom, Simone Duvalier, and she instead became prime minister. Interestingly, Cambron moved to Miami in 1972, and in November of that year, the New York Times published an article about the Haitian government canceling a contract with Hemo Caribbean. Jean-Claude also had Madame Max Adolf removed from her position as warden of Fort Dimanche, and instead she was appointed to mayor of Port-au-Prince. The man who took over the Tonton Macoute was Roger Lafontaine. Lafontaine, a gynecologist by training, founded the student branch of the Tonton Macoute. In 1972, Lafontaine was appointed Minister of the Interior and National Defense by Baby Doc. Unlike many dictatorships, the power transition from Papa to Baby Doc was clear, but Jean-Claude was raised within the palace walls, often isolated from the outside reality of his own country. By his own upbringing, Baby Doc didn't have a solid grasp on the practicalities of the job. The Tonton Makut operated 
alongside Baby Doc until his fall from power 15 years later. In 1985, revolts ignited in a couple different Haitian provinces. The Haitian people demonstrated in the streets and stormed a food storage warehouse. Between October of 1985 and January of the following year, much of Haiti broke out into open revolt. Baby Doc tried to make some changes to quell the rebellion, such as lowering food prices, but the damage was done, and even he couldn't stop the full might of a good old-fashioned Haitian revolt. By this point, too, the U.S. was getting fed up with the Devalier regimes. President Ronald Reagan pressured Baby Doc to GTFO. The U.S. government wasn't going to take in the Devalier family, but assisted with transporting BBD to France. Baby Doc took the message and showed himself out on February 7th, 1986 in a U.S. Air Force plane. Oh, and he took about $900 million of embezzled funds with him. Leaving the country, he and his father ruled the poorest in the Western Hemisphere. What about the Tonton Makut? Clearly, they had trouble controlling these waves of Haitian revolt. In fact, several Tonton Makut members were stopped by the angry crowds and beaten to death. They served Baby Doc through his time in power until 1986 and beyond. When Baby Doc was exiled, the Makut's final chief, Roger Lafontante, also fled the country to neighboring Dominican Republic. Lafontante returned to Haiti in July of 1990 to run for president, but in January 1991, he instead staged a coup. Lafontante claimed he had the backing of the Haitian army, but General Harold Abraham was like, nah, bro. Of course, Lafontante was arrested for this and sentenced to life in prison in July 1991. Only a few months later, in September, Roger Lafontante was killed in prison during another coup attempt. Madame Max Adolf is said to have been held prisoner in an army barracks close to the presidential palace, and she left Haiti in February 1986, but her current whereabouts are unknown. What I got from researching this topic is that Haitians are really good at coups. If the Olympics had coups as an event, Haitians would win gold medal every time. Great success. The Tonton Maku carried on for some time after the Devalier regime until about 1986, when it formally dissolved. However, the Tonton Maku developed several different paramilitary offshoots in the 90s. The most notorious of these secret police offspring was the Front for the Advancement and Progress of Haiti, or the FRAPH. I'm going to call it FRAP. So FRAP was organized in 1983 by a man named Emmanuel Constant, who had some ties to the CIA and gathered support for his group from, I bet you could guess this one, the United States government. Sources are unclear if Constant was an agent of the Tonton Makut, and he would have been about three years old when they were established. Emmanuel eventually left Haiti for the United States because of yet another palace coup. He was wanted by the Haitian government, so he peaced out for Long Island, New York. While in New York, he got busted for a $1 million mortgage fraud in 2006. As an aside, Luckner Cambrone died in September 2006. And honestly, sometimes it's like weird to read about these people that I've never heard of before actually like looking into this stuff. And I think about what I was doing around the time of their deaths. I started eighth grade in September 2006, while the guy who sold bad blood to the United States went on tour with the Grim Reaper. Back to Emmanuel for a moment. In 2008, he was sentenced to a minimum of 12 years in a New York state prison, and in 2020 was scheduled for extradition to Haiti. In Haiti, the Tantan Makut might be gone, but I think most of you know things aren't exactly peachy there. 
Haiti continued to have coups and unstable leadership after the Duvalier regimes. In 2010, Haiti suffered a devastating 7.0 magnitude earthquake that collapsed the presidential palace. In the aftermath of the earthquake, Michel Martelet won the presidency despite admitting he'd been a member of the Tonton Makut. Baby Doc died in October of 2014 of a heart attack. As recent as September 2023, gang violence has erupted inside Haiti. Unfortunately, some pine for a return to the Devalier days because at least that provided some sense of stability. Let's recap. Christopher Columbus landed on Hispaniola in 1492. He and his crew made contact with the Taino natives. Over time, Europeans discovered the mineral and agricultural resources on the island and further settled the land, pushing the native populations out via conflict or foreign pathogens imported to Hispaniola. Sugarcane was the most abundant crop ahead of coffee and other staples. Much like today, sugarcane was milled and refined into sugar crystals to be sold on the European market. Unfortunately, slaves bought and sold in the transatlantic slave trade bore much of the burden in terms of much blood and tears to keep this cash cow moving. Hispaniola was split into two regions, San Domingue, a French colony, and Santo Domingo, a Spanish colony. Some slave owners, like Nicolas Lejeune, treated their slaves like literal animals or worse. But there was no legal recourse for wronged or literally tortured slaves, and slave owners were highly unlikely to face any real consequences. My main source for this information on slavery, Crash Course, points out that slavery can be difficult to define and notes that, for some reason, we don't refer to the prisoners in Stalin's gulags as slaves, but they definitely performed slave labor. Why do you think that is? Well. I think because people in gulags were considered prisoners and enslaved Africans were considered property. But in both cases, forced laborers occupied the lowest rung of their respective societies. The slaves in Saint-Domingue staged a successful revolt to overthrow the system around the same time as the ideas of the Enlightenment permeated society and word of the French Revolution spread to the colonies. Later, Napoleon's forces were defeated in their bid to restore the slave system in Saint-Domingue. Hispaniola kept roughly the same borders as they do now, split by Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Haiti suffered a long history of leadership coups and unstable governments until Dr. Francois Duvalier took power. Duvalier, also known as Papa Doc, consolidated his power and deployed state terrorism upon the Haitian people through his fearsome secret police called the Tonton Makut. The Tonton Makut recruited from violent corners of society, including prisoners. The Tonton Makut had a women's branch led by the much feared Madame Max, who had no problem with torturing people of any age, from children to the elderly. The Tonton Makut was first directed by Clement Barbeau, who fell out of favor with Francois Duvalier. The next was Luckner Cambron, who owned several Haitian enterprises and exported human blood to the United States while his company operated by unsafe, unhygienic practices, increasing the risk of contamination with bloodborne pathogens like HIV. When Papa Doc died in April 1972, Baby Doc took power and appointed Roger Lefontan to lead the Tonton Makut. The Tonton Makut were given the ultimate pass to instill fear and weed out opposition by any means necessary disappearing people from their homes in the middle of the night, shooting entire families and setting their houses on fire, violent interrogations, and leaving bodies in the streets to decompose. Today, the Tantan Makut may be in the past, but Haiti is grappling with the effects of the 2010 earthquake and, more recently, gang violence. I think one of the worst parts of all this is that it seems like the Duvalier government caused all this pain and suffering on the Haitian people for money. 
Duvalier didn't really have an ideology, and Haiti itself doesn't seem to have a strong ideological identity, at least during Duvalier's regime. It was no Soviet Union or Nazi Germany with the kind of marketing and branding of symbols and flair associated with zealous ideological adherence. No, Haiti seems much more oriented to their culture and their belief system in Catholicism and Vodou. What Papa Doc operated was more like a kleptocracy. I wish he had just stayed a doctor and eradicated some diseases. If he had done that, he'd probably be famous. He could have written a book, done speeches, taught tropical medicine, and made maybe not dictator levels of wealth, but he would have been comfortable. I admit, I'm perplexed as to why exactly Papa Doc did what he did. Chalking it all up to greed or power less just feels too simple to me. I don't like simple, neatly packaged answers. What's interesting to me about the Tonton Makud is they are a great example of what a secret police force is supposed to accomplish, especially considering that from my research, Haiti doesn't have a long history of secret police. Let's go back to the definition of what a secret police force is supposed to be from the very first episode of this entire show. I'll just read exactly what I wrote back in April 2022. Political police is a more precise definition because these forces have the authority to enforce the political agenda of the administration on the citizens by any means necessary, including terror, torture, and re-education. Sheena Chestnut Greitens, associate professor at the LBJ School at University of Texas at Austin, characterizes such police agencies as coercive institutions, stating, quote, Autocrats who aspire to stay in power must address a range of threats. Optimizing a coercive apparatus to deal with each type of potential threat, however, would produce different coercive institutional designs for each threat. End quote. Secret police are a tool for autocratic regimes to enforce the government's political ideology, loyalty to the ruler, and suppress opposition using any means necessary, up to and including death. So Papa Doc got into power, recognized the pattern of coups in his country, identified the correct institutions to control, and established a secret police to keep him in power. This is a textbook coercive institution made from scratch, and it worked. It worked too well. From their inception to their downfall, it is estimated that the Tantan Makut murdered about 30,000 to 60,000 people. Given this history, hopefully we can understand how Haiti got to where it is today, and we can only hope they don't turn to another Duvalier-like personality for faith, guidance, and stability. Well, I hope you did enjoy this episode. Please check out Secret Police on YouTube, drop a five-star rating if you think I'm worthy, and keep sending in those reviews. Please continue to share the show with your friends, family, and people you're totally indifferent about. Find me on the socials, and feel free to reach out. I enjoy um, answering questions and getting feedback. Next episode, we're heading to another island nation on nearly the opposite end of the world from Haiti. From 1881 to 1945, the Kempei loomed large as part of Japan's military government, especially during World War II. Travel with me to Japan to kick off Secret Police in 2024. Until then, please do not talk to any of the heads of your enemies. Agents dismissed.
Roddy, I'll put you in a permanent nap if you keep arguing. 